Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back, everyone. Today is an exciting day. Bob and Doug of the Crew Dragon 2 are back on Earth. They are. They landed just an hour ago. Today is August 2nd. Yeah. Welcome back, Bob and Doug. But welcome back. And then on some other really exciting news, they've actually announced the crew of the next mission. They're going to refurbish the vehicle that Bob and Doug just flew in and used. They're going to refurbish it and they're going to do another mission that's planned for the spring of 2021. And this trip is actually going to include Megan MacArthur, who is Bob Benkin's wife. And she's also an astronaut who flew on the shuttle as well. And actually, both Doug and Bob are married to veteran astronauts. Yeah. So I thought that was really cool. It is really cool. We talk a little bit about them in the Crew Dragon episode. A couple episodes back, we did about the launch specifically. It's really neat. They're both amazing women. What's also cool about this next batch of astronauts is there's going to be the first one from not NASA. There's going to be Akihito Hoshide, and he's part of Japan's JAXA Space Agency. And then there's also going to be Thomas Pesquit of the European Space Agency. Very awesome. Yeah, and then also there's going to be NASA's Shane Kimbrough, just so we don't leave him out too. He's also cool. Awesome. It's going to be really neat. It'll also be double the amount of people. Yeah, that is true. I'm excited to see it in spring of 2021. Me too. All right. So today we're going to be talking about another hot news topic, Mars Perseverance. Perseverance that also recently launched. That's right. Lots of exciting news for the space industry in these last couple months. Last week, Mars Perseverance launched from Cape Canaveral. We were just so excited about it that we decided to do this episode all about the technology and the history of the Mars Perseverance rover. Yeah, it's really neat. It's really cool. There's so much I didn't know before going into doing this episode. I'm really excited to talk about it to all of you. Me too. All right. Do you want to hop in and get going? Should we introduce ourselves? Yes, let's do it. I'm Henna. And I'm Anna. And this is... But But it it is Rocket Science. Science. All right. Are you ready to learn about the technical description of Perseverance? I'm so excited, Anna. Let's do this. This was a really fun one. It ended up getting very long, (laughs) but it was all interesting information, and I didn't want to cut any of it out. So instead of doing a future section, I switched it to similarities to the Curiosity rover and then kind of differences in new stuff. I think that qualifies as future. It hasn't been tested yet. On Mars, anyway. Definitely. That makes sense to me. To start out, Perseverance is a Mars rover which was manufactured and designed by NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory or JPL, as part of NASA's Mars 2020 mission. I'm just going to touch on this really quick to give you context so everybody's not confused. Henna's really going to dive into what this is. But Mars 2020 is a rover mission that falls under the umbrella of the Mars Exploration Program, or MEP. This was formed in 1993, and it's funded and led by NASA. The goal of the MEP... Ooh, MEP is kind of hard to say. <laughs> The goal of the MEP is to investigate the possibility of life on Mars, as well as the planet's climate and natural resources. Essentially, the goal is just to find out more about Mars. Is it possible for humans to ever live there? Has there ever been life? That's what I took out of it. But Hannah will explain more, I'm sure. Yes, I'll get into it more later. All right, back to what's going on with Perseverance. I kind of mentioned this earlier, (laughs) a couple seconds ago. But Perseverance is nearly identical in design to the Curiosity rover, 
Again, I'm also sure Hannah will talk more about it, but really quick. Curiosity was a Mars rover that has been active on Mars since it landed on August 6th, 2012. A very quick rover overview. Very quick. There's a body that holds all the electronics. It's got six wheels. It's various cameras for imaging and navigation. And there's also a power source. Essentially, it's a really fancy RC car. I love that. It is. (laughs) (laughs) I was trying, I was like, what's the best way to explain this? I was like, it got, it has wheels, it has a metal body, it's got some electronics inside it. It's basically a very high-tech RC car. That's so true. Like, the instrumentation makes it super high-tech. Oh, yeah. In addition to all that stuff, there's also a variety of cool sensors and analyzers and other technology that I'm going to go into later. But I figured the best place to start was with the size. Perseverance is about 10 feet long. That does not include the arm, which I'll also talk about in a little bit. 9 feet wide and 7 feet tall, or about 3 by 2.7 by 2.2 meters. And then as I was reading, all these articles were like, it's about the size of a car. And I was like, is it? <laughs> like, what? The, what is the size of a car? So for comparison, according to dimensions.com, a 2016 Toyota Prius is about 15 feet long, 5 foot 9 inches wide, and 4 foot 10 inches tall. So it's pretty close. It's not as long. Yeah. Shorter. A little bit fatter. Yeah. Which is interesting to me because I've never pictured it as that large. I don't know why, but in my head I always imagined that these rovers were significantly smaller. And I think it's just because when you see pictures of them, you see them on these barren planets or a single barren planet, Mars. So there's not a lot to use for scale. That's so true. And then you'll see the animations of them, and the animations just make them look cute and small. Yes. But when you actually watch the videos with people standing next to these rovers, you're like, oh my goodness, these are actually pretty big. They're like the size of an SUV. Exactly. It's fairly large. I wouldn't say an SUV. Maybe like a smart car. (laughs) But still pretty big. Interestingly enough, this is about twice as large as the previous Mars rovers, Spirit and Opportunity. Quick shout out to Opportunity, which contacted NASA for the last time on June 10th, 2018. And as a cool aside, Opportunity's planned mission duration was only 90 souls, so a soul is a Martian day, or 92.5 Earth days. A Martian soul is a tiny bit longer than Earth day. The mission ended up being... 5,352 souls, or 5,498 Earth days, which is 15 Earth years, or 8 Martian years. So it significantly exceeded its planned mission duration, which was really cool. That's amazing. I thought so too, and it's really famous for that. They made the design being like, we want to get through 90 days, and then they made it through 15 years. (laughs) Great job to that engineering team. Perseverance, as I mentioned before, is very close in size to that of its predecessor, Curiosity. However, at 2,260 pounds, it is about 278 pounds heavier. Sticking with the 2016 Prius, that is about 3,010 to 3,080 pounds, depending on what extras you get. Yeah. In metric, it's about 150 kilograms heavier. That's what I just read. And you're right. The dimensions, they're almost the same the height width and length the big difference here is the mass it's really how much it weighs and it weighs more because there's extra stuff on it that wasn't on curiosity which again i'm gonna get to don't worry (laughs) and if any of you are wondering why i went with the dimensions of a 2016 prius it's just because it's what i could find easily so 
2016 Prius it is. I don't know why that is what was easily available on the (laughs) internet, but it was. We'll go with it. The main similarities between Curiosity and Perseverance are the rover body, the cruise stage, descent stage, and the aeroshell or heat shield. They're very similar, if not identical, between the two. I figured the best way to do this was just to go in chronological order in how you would get to Mars. Chronological order would essentially be you have this rover on Earth, how does it get to Mars? That's where the cruise stage comes into play here. Hannah's going to talk about this. Actually, we already mentioned it. Perseverance launched. Hannah, can you tell us? July 30th, 7.50 a.m. EST. However, it can't hitch a ride the entire way. It gets a ride on a rocket that will deliver it to orbit. It can't hitch a ride on this rocket the entire way. As a result, you needed something called the cruise stage. The cruise stage is essentially the outer shell or box that serves as the transportation of the rover to Mars from Earth orbit. The way I think about it is the cruise stage makes the rover a space vehicle. So it has the propulsion on there. Yeah, it's essentially the spaceship for the rover. Gotcha. The design of the Perseverance cruise stage is very similar to that of Curiosity's, which actually was very similar to another rover, Pathfinder. It's approximately 8.7 feet or 2.65 meters in diameter and 5.2 feet or 1.6 meters tall. And it has a launch mass of 1,063 kilograms, or 2,344 pounds. The primary structure is made from aluminum, with an outer ring of ribs covered in solar panels. So it uses the solar panels to power itself. The cruise stage is equipped with a star scanner and a backup sun sensor to help the spacecraft determine where it is in space. The star scanner examines the position of stars and compares that to a star map, more or less to determine where it is. This is always really cool to me, the intricacies of star scanners. Mm -hmm. Essentially, it has this backlog or it knows what all the stars should look like. And it knows that if you see this set of stars in your view, this is your location. Yeah, it's like a compass, except in space. Yeah, and significantly more complicated. Yes, definitely. (laughs) If something happens to the star scanner, that's when the sun sensor comes in. It does a pretty similar job, but it just tells the cruise stage where it is by using the location of the sun. As Hannah mentioned, the cruise stage is the propulsion, so there are two lightweight propellant tanks carrying hydrazine propellant to allow for correctional maneuvers. So hydrogen powers thrusters, which ensure the rover is on track to land in the exact right spot on Mars. Once Perseverance gets to Mars' atmosphere, it actually has to land on the Martian surface. And this whole set of things is commonly called EDL, or Entry, Descent, and Landing. Perseverance e- Perseverance's, that's such a mouthful, Perseverance's EDL will be very similar to that of Curiosity's. It's a really cool and complicated set of maneuvers, but I'm only going to summarize them here. If you're interested in it, I really highly recommend you dig into it a little bit more. And also go watch the Curiosity 7 Minutes of Terror. That's what this whole process is referred to as. It's like the seven minutes of terror. And there's some really cool animations of this whole EDL and how complicated it is. It's incredibly complicated. It's really neat. And the reason they call it the seven minutes of terror is because this is when things can go really wrong. Mm -hmm. First off, the cruise stage delivers the rover to a specific spot right outside of the Martian atmosphere. This ends the cruise phase and begins something called the approach phase. Previous Mars rovers, such as Pathfinder or Opportunity, had a ballistic landing. Alright, I was trying to Google an exact definition of this. 
And I'm pretty sure it just means it falls or crash lands onto the surface. It's not controlled. They kind of just drop it into the atmosphere and hope everything goes well. Well, they have a parachute, but it's not controlled. So a ballistic landing is when, just like what Anna said, it's not controlled. It's all up to the Martian atmosphere as opposed to something that's more guided. Yeah, exactly. Essentially, you point the heat shield down and it just free falls down. And then the parachute deploys. But as we talked about all in our parachute episode, parachutes, there's almost no control. Essentially, it goes wherever Mars wants them to go. Yeah, that's right. However, Curiosity was the first rover that instead utilized a controlled descent. And to do this, this is actually really cool. Curiosity starts to despin, going from two revolutions per minute to a stop in a specific orientation. Then the spacecraft rotates such that the nose of the heat shield is facing in the direction of travel. And it just falls. And if it kept falling like that, that would be a ballistic landing. Right. But it doesn't. What they actually do is five minutes before entry into the atmosphere, I wrote, hold on to your pants because this is really cool. (laughs) I don't know why I felt like that was what needed to be said there. But the spacecraft jettisons or essentially just lets go of two 165 pound or 75 kilogram tungsten balance masses off one side. That's just weights. Balance masses are just weights. But that's what NASA calls them. It drops 165 pounds off one side of it. And what this does is it causes the center of gravity to shift away from the center. And the whole thing actually tips. So instead of the nose facing straight down, it's now at a 20 degree tilt. That's really cool. Yeah. It was straight, perpendicular to the surface, and now it's at a tilt. It's like guiding it in a direction. Yeah, it just forces it to tilt. And what this tilt actually does is it prevents the spacecraft from just falling. It actually generates lift. Oh, very cool. Yes. And because of that, it's much more controlled than the ballistic entry. It uses an internal measurement unit, which contains gyroscopes to help determine its path through the atmosphere. And the spacecraft actually makes corrections as necessary to ensure it lands where it wants to. Well, the scientists want it to. (laughs) It doesn't have feelings. That's true. With the ballistic descent, the area of coverage is so much larger than a guided descent. With a ballistic descent, the rover can land within a huge radius that's several times larger than a guided one. Yeah, but essentially it tilts so it can generate lift. And in order to make it through the Martian atmosphere, a heat shield is required. The spacecraft actually ends up experiencing temperatures of up to 2100 degrees Celsius. Which is insane. The example in the article I was reading, it used the fact that basalt lava melts at around 1100 degrees Celsius. That's crazy. 2100 degrees Celsius. That's almost double that basalt lava melting point. Yeah, it's basically double the temperature required to melt a rock. (laughs) Like, that's that's insane. insane. What is it? Water boils at 100 degrees Celsius, so it's more than 20 times that. Oh my gosh. Really insane. I can't even imagine that. It's really hot. My obvious question was, what material can even survive that? Both Curiosity and Perseverance heat shields were actually made out of something called phenol... Phenol... Whoa, I... Phenoloic... Phenolic. (laughs) Phenolic impregnated carbon albator, also known as PICA or P-I-C-A. Once the spacecraft reaches speeds of Mach 2 that's twice the speed of sound, we're ready for parachute deployment. But before it can land, remember, it's tilted. It can't land like that. 
things won't go well. What's the best way to fix it? Well, guess what? There's actually six 55-pound masses on the other side, so it translates to be the same. I don't know why they ended up using two on one side and six on the other that end up weighing the same thing. I don't know if it's for packaging purposes, but the masses have ended up being the same. They dump those six 55-pound masses, and the center of gravity is actually returned to the center, and it evens itself out. It's straight, it's ready for the parachute to launch, it's ready to land. That's really interesting. I did not know they did that. That's really cool. What's also cool about that, if you do the math, in total, they carried 660 pounds of dead weight to space. Yeah, for balancing and directing. Yes. Incredible. It's so important to be able to control where this rover lands that it's worth sending 660 pounds of essentially worthless weights to space. And I just love almost the, it's complicated, like the math behind it is complicated, but the simplicity of the solution where it's just throwing weights off of this system, it's complex but simple. It's really elegant. Yes. All right, back to the parachute. Curiosity's parachute was the largest ever open on Mars at 70.5 feet or 21.5 meters across. Funny enough, Perseverance's is actually the same size from what I could find online. I didn't know if it would have to be bigger because it weighs a little bit more, but I guess it didn't have to. They were both made out of nylon, Technora, and Kevlar. I had I knew what nylon and Kevlar were. I had no idea what Technora was. But apparently it's a high-performance fiber that is eight times stronger than steel. Wow. Yeah, I thought that was cool. I was like, wow, that's impressive. Also a really cool name, Technora. (laughs) I know, it's kind of catchy. It's fun to say. What's also neat is that parachute had to be so big, even though the rover is not all that large, is because the Martian atmosphere is so thin. There's almost no air in it. Because of that, you need a much larger surface area to slow it down. That's right, because the Martian atmosphere, it's one one one-hundredth as dense as the Earth atmosphere. It's very thin. It's also why we can't breathe there. Yeah. But what's also cool about the Perseverance landing is it will actually utilize a new piece of technology called TRN, or Terrain Relative Navigation. This is a sophisticated navigation system which helps the rover avoid landing in areas with hazardous terrain by diverting around it. There's a lot more to it. I highly recommend you look it up, but essentially it's a new piece of navigation equipment they're testing out. Once the parachute opens, the vehicle will begin to decelerate, and it will take about 30 seconds or less to reach subsonic speeds, which is less than the speed of sound, which is really impressive to me that it goes from double the speed of sound to the speed of sound or less in 30 seconds with that parachute. Oh yeah, it's crazy. I thought so too. Once you get to subsonic speeds, The heat shield is dropped off because you don't need it anymore, but more importantly than that, it exposes the wheels so the rover can actually land. Woo! Woo! There's a lot of cool sensors and equipment used to land that I just don't have time to dig into, but if you're curious about it, go look it up. There's some really cool radar kind of stuff they use. That's right. We've made it to the surface. What actually is this rover you keep talking about? I figured the best place to start was with the body which again is similar to that of Curiosity's. Perseverance's body, also called the Warm Electronics Box, or web, is a strong outer layer. I was desperately trying to find what material this is. I'm assuming it's a composite of some sort, but I couldn't find it anywhere. What I did find was that it's a strong outer layer which protects the computer and electronics. 
I also found a whole bunch of articles that were, like, definitely, I think, intended for children <laughs> that have really cute analogies of the rover. To be like, this is the body, the cameras, the eyes, like, the electronics are the brain. <laughs> it was really cute. Cute. I enjoyed reading it. I think it's made for children. <laughs> but <laughs> it's called the warm electronics box since the electronics need to be temperature controlled. Temperatures on Mars vary, but at the Curiosity landing site, they could have been anywhere from negative 197 to 104 Fahrenheit or negative 127 to 40 degrees Celsius. I'm imagining the Perseverance landing site is also going to have a similar temperature range. The electronics cannot function at temperatures that are that cold. They also can't function at temperatures that are that hot. However, for the majority of the year, they're too cold and they need to be warmed up. Even your own consumer electronics can't function at crazy temperature strings. That's right. I think if you even like read on the box, if you have an alarm clock or something, I don't know why that's the first thing I think of. It'll say operating temperatures. Consumer electronics can't handle temperature swings. Even these electronics can't handle that kind of extreme temperatures. Exactly. The iPhone, when it's heated up too much, when you leave it in your hot car, I've come back to my iPhone just shutting off, saying it overheated and it needs to just be in shutdown mode. Exactly. That's a way better analogy than an alarm <laughs> clock. Who even? I have a physical alarm clock. <laughs> yeah, or your laptop heats up and just shuts off because your fan stopped working. Right. The web, like Anna said, it is a super critical system of the rover. It includes like the heart and the brain, going back to those cute analogies, where it has the processing system, the rad hard, radiation hardened processing system, the memories to store all the data, the batteries. And like Anna said, like these electronics are super critical for the function of this rover, that it's so important to temperature control. Yep, exactly. So to do this, they use something called the heat rejection system. Contrary to the name, this is also used to heat components up. It makes it sound like it only cools them, but it also heats them up. And it does this by using electronic heaters that are used to dissipate heat to internal components. But there's, like we said earlier, there's almost no air on Mars. Because of that, there's no convection. There's only conduction. Convection is heat transfer you get through the air. If you put your hand over a hot stove burner, you can feel that heat because it's convecting from the burner through the air up to your hand. In Mars, it wouldn't work that way because there's no air. You would only be able to feel that heat if you actually touched the burner. That's conduction. That's surface to surface. Because of that, you can't just heat up the area around the electronics and expect the electronics to heat up. You actually have to utilize a system of surface to surface contact. So to do this, they use this using fluid carried through 200 feet of tubing that are woven throughout the rover body. So they heat up this fluid and then they send it through this crazy stream of tubing, which carries the heat to ensure all the components are at the exact correct temperature. Cool. Right? It's neat. That's really neat. It's a really interesting solution. The system can also do the reverse and get rid of excess heat, as the name implied. It does this by dumping waste heat by pumping fluid through two heat exchangers mounted alongside of something called the RTG. What is the RTG, you ask? <laughs> what a great question! <laughs> That's the rover's power source. It was also used by Curiosity. I'm not going to go into this here, but RTG stands for Radioisotope Thermoelectric Generator. Radioisotope power systems, or RPSs, are generators that produce electricity from the decay of radioactive isotopes. In this case, it's plutonium-238, which is a non-fizzle isotope of plutonium. I think that just means it can't be used for nuclear purposes. 
RTGs are really cool. Yeah, so essentially they work by throwing off a ton of heat through this decay of plutonium-238, and then they use that heat to produce electricity. That's right. Or power. Yeah, and they've been used in a number of satellites and space probes. They're pretty common. I actually even think this was mentioned in The Martian, that book by Andy Weir. Oh, yeah. I'm pretty sure the, what is his name, Mark, he digs one up and uses it as a heater. I don't remember that detail, but I wouldn't be surprised. Like, it sounds like a very Martian type of detail to have. So, I don't know. Fun connection to the real world. All right, moving on to the mast cam. This is essentially the rover's eyes. It's the little part that, like, sticks up when you look at it. If you look at the rover, it's what looks like a face or eyes. (laughs) Or a head. Heck yeah. For Perseverance, it's called Mast Cam Z. And I just took a direct quote of what it is from the NASA website. And it's an advanced camera system with panoramic and stereoscopic imaging capability with the ability to zoom. (laughs) It's a very fancy camera that can zoom. Curiosity actually used something similar. What's really neat about this is it's placed at the same level as human eyes. And that's so that the images can easily be scaled. So the idea is the camera is placed at the same height as like the average human's eyes would be. So that when you look at the images, it's easy to figure out how big or small the things in the pictures are. Cool. That's really neat. Yeah, because you're looking at it at the same height at which you would be. Super awesome. Yes, I thought so too. Because if you're looking at something from way down low, it'll look huge, even if it's not. It was just like a minute detail that never even occurred to me, but it's actually really important. Yeah, it never occurred to me either, but it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and it also, I think, is why it kind of looks like a head, because it's at the same height as a human. There is a lot more cool stuff that I'm going to go into, but I'm actually going to stop it here, and I think now is a really awesome time to listen to Henna tell us all about the history. I'm really excited to talk about the history, but first, do you think we should take a break? Yeah, let's do it. Sweet. We'll be back. We will be back soon. Hold on to your pants. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what I was going for there. We're back. Who's excited to hear about some Perseverance history? I am. I am so excited. But first, I just want to give everybody an update about my life. I bought one of those cream (laughs) whipper things. You know what I mean? Like, they use little nitrous canisters, essentially, to make your own whipped cream. Yes. It's amazing. That's awesome. Actually, I'm trying to think of this nitrous canister, and I've heard of, like, making a nitro cold brew coffee. Does it work similarly like that? Yeah, you can also just put cold brew in it. Oh, sweet. Yeah, it's the same thing. All nitro cold brew is, is cold brew that's had nitrous oxide pushed through it. You can do that in the same bottle. Sweet. It's really cool. I just wanted to share with everybody how I love it so much. That's my quarantine life. Anybody you would like to share with the people, Hannah? Let me think about this. Oh my gosh, I went to a dollar store the other day and I found these magnificent cookies. Um, <laughs> I'm eating them right now, so... What are they called? Um, They're called Critch. Oh my god, are they the knockoff Girl Scout cookies? I think so. They're like these chocolatey, wafery cookies. And it says that they're made in Italy, but they were only a dollar. And they're really chocolatey and delicious. <laughs> um, So that's the delicious update of my life. <laughs> Yeah, I've had those. They're like dollar store knockoff Girl Scout cookies, and they're really good. They're delicious. Oh, my gosh. 
Alright. Alright. I am psyched to hear about the history of this thing. Wonderful. I'll go ahead and get started. Let's get going. I've got my pants. Heck yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. Also, Anna, just wanted an update. So, for those of you who have been following our episodes and have come back after our breaks, Anna's foot always seems to fall asleep right before our break and she has to walk it off. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't mention it this time because I figured everybody was just getting annoyed. But yes, I also had to walk off my foot being asleep. It's back. I've probably got another 30 minutes before I got to walk around again. All right, let's get this history section in before that happens again. Let's go. But yes, I'm sure everybody needed to know that. Thank you, Hannah. <laughs> no problem. <sighs> All right. I found a beautiful trove of literature on the mars.nasa.gov website. I would highly recommend checking out the NASA website if you want any more details than what we cover in this episode. Yeah, they've got some really awesome stuff. Yes, exactly. Specifically on this website, there's a lengthy paper by JPL's Science Definition Team, SDT, stands for Science Definition Team. <laughs> no way! <laughs> Sometimes I feel like when I rush through an acronym, I just want to repeat it because I personally forget acronyms all the time. I do it too. I'm just making fun of you. <laughs> but now you guys all know what SDT stands for. There's a paper titled Report of the Mars 2020. And I read that one to really dive into the background of figuring out this rover's plans. All right, so the story of Perseverance and Ingenuity. Ingenuity is the little rotorcraft attached to Perseverance's belly. I think Anna's going to get into this some more later. I am. Don't worry. It's really cool. Wonderful. It's really awesome. It's beautiful. The story of Perseverance and Ingenuity all began from a presentation by Dr. Grunsfeld at the American Geophysical Union meeting in December 2012 in San Francisco. This presentation was all about how NASA wants to return to the Martian surface to continue research. Following this presentation, a science definition team's chair was selected. Following the selection of this chair member, a dear colleague, this is what the letter was called, a dear colleague letter was sent out to ask for volunteer applicants. You had to apply to be a part of the science definition team. And the science definition team was planning how we were going to get to Mars again? Right. So the science definition team was planning the objectives and the science instrumentation that we're going to use to meet our objectives. Gotcha. Okay. 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 And I'll get into the objectives in just a moment. The science definition team itself was selected from these applications, along with an assessment team that would review the science definition team's work. Anna's aware of this and I'm aware of this. We're both in the aerospace industry. And whenever we work on any sort of project, we always have other reviewers that are outside of our team who do a pass at our work. Yeah, a peer review. A peer review. That's basically what this assessment team was. Gotcha. Cool. Yeah, really cool. SDT wrote its plans, that being the document that I read for this episode, by May 31st of 2013. So they were working pretty fast. December 2012 was when they had the presentation by Dr. Grunsfield, and May 31st was when this document describing all the objectives and plans, proof of concept, was written up. Really speedy there. Super speedy. I really enjoyed reading the background in this 
paper. It's really awesome to go back in time and read the original objectives of this mission because it's from 2013, seven years ago. It's just really awesome to see those objectives and see, oh, wow, this rover launched just last week. It's really cool. It's probably neat to see what we have done already and what's changed from the initial objectives. It's always cool to look at the initial plan of something and see what actually happened. Happening. Exactly. This mission was defined by four major objectives. I'm going to read them as they are written in this original paper. The first objective was explore an astrobiologically relevant ancient environment on Mars to decipher its geological processes and history, including the assessment of past habitability. So what does this mean? It means we want to study an area on Mars where there could be evidence of past life. We want to study that area to see how history shaped it. I just always get confused when I hear they're searching for past life, so I'm sure this must confuse other people too. What they mean by life is they don't just mean they're looking for signs that there was another human-like intelligent civilization. They're talking like on a cellular level. Exactly. Cellular, molecular, from Earth's oceans. These oceans on planet Earth are these extreme environments, and we've found evidence of microbial, molecular, cellular life in these little nooks and crannies of our oceans in these extreme environments. So it makes us wonder, as scientists and engineers, in these extreme environments on Mars, where we know from imaging has supported water in its past, are there signs, preserved signs of life? Exactly. On a cellular, molecular level. I was just confused when I see that. I'm like, it makes me think of past civilizations, which there could have been, who knows? But they're just looking on a very small level. Exactly. We're not envisioning finding like a fossil of an alien form that we see in the movies. Probably it's not. It's really just some traces. And this actually leads me into the next objective really well. The next objective is assess the biosignature preservation potential within the selected geological environment and search for potential biosignatures. So what does this mean? A biosignature, as Anna led us into, it's basically a molecular fossil, which I thought was really cool. It's a molecule or an element that indicates past presence of life. Neat. Yeah, I really like that term, biosignature. So NASA wants to determine whether that Martian surface has protected these biosignatures and then also how to look for them. The third objective is to provide an opportunity for contributed HEOMD or Human Exploration and Operations Mission Directorate or the Space Technology Program, STP, participation, compatible with the science payload and within the mission's payload capacity. Basically what this means is that we want this project, this project should further our abilities for future human exploration of the Martian surface. And last but not least, the fourth objective is to demonstrate significant technical progress towards the future return of scientifically selected, well-documented samples to Earth. This one is pretty self-explanatory. We want to be able to return samples in the future. Interesting. We've done that with the moon, but it's a lot closer, so it's a lot easier. Exactly. And the question may come to mind, why would we want to preserve these samples now as opposed to doing it in the future when we return to Mars in either a robotic or human form? You know, I was curious about that too, because essentially what you're saying is we want to take samples, we want to preserve them right now so we can go back and get them later and it's like well why don't you just save the effort send people in a couple years and have them take the samples then exactly 
I actually watched a really great video about this. I'll link it in the sources. But the reason why we want to do it now is because we know that we have been basically contaminating the Martian surface with our rovers. And we're going to continue to contaminate that Martian surface with future robotic missions and future human missions. The best thing to do is try to get, as soon as possible, some preserved samples that have not been contaminated. We can truly study them to see those biosignatures. Oh, so they want to guarantee that the samples are not contaminated by humans. Exactly. And also, by sending the rover now and collecting these samples now, we can save mass in the future. The heavy drill perseverance is carrying. We won't need to carry, we probably won't need to carry that mass in a future robotic mission. So that's another plus. And then another question comes to mind is, well, okay, if we are introducing some sort of some level of contamination with our rovers right now, how can we ensure that the samples that we're collecting from the Martian surface with perseverance are going to be completely clean? So what's really cool is that perseverance will have these will have witness tubes. What these witness tubes are are these tubes preloaded with contaminants and it will also be collecting samples of Mars and these contaminants are from for example these contaminants can be introduced from outgassing of uh, the Mars rovers equipment and it can also be from uh, any sort of chemical remnants from the landing propulsion system so basically these witness tubes are a control so we'll collect clean samples in another two in other tubes but then we'll in the future, when humans go and collect these samples, they can compare what's in the witness tubes to what is in the clean collect sample tubes and compare the two. Oh, so they essentially have tubes or samples of the known possible contaminants of the rover. So if any of them show up in the samples, we know where they came from. Exactly, Anna. I thought that was really cool. It's fascinating. A, it's fascinating. It was a really smart move. <laughs> I never even thought of, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, it's really cool. But um, that was a very long tangent. So going back to the report. It was a good one, though. Yeah, it's interesting stuff. All of the Perseverance content that I've read is interesting. Um, so this report also lays out other guidelines, such as the launch date 2020, which we know, uh, what the cost of the instrumentation should be limited to, and in the paper, they wrote that it should be limited to $100 million for U.S. instruments, but this didn't include any sort of support equipment, such as arms and science instruments. And the mission lifetime of the rover, which is expected to be about one Martian year, or 690 Earth days. In this plan, the science definition team also dove into plans for the instrument suite on board the rover, and NASA announced the instruments in July 2014. These instruments were critical because the instruments are the means of meeting these objectives of determining past life of Mars, future habitability of Mars, and determining the best samples to return to Earth. And Anna's gonna get into more detail about these um, instruments, like she already has, um, but they're super cool. Huh. There's a lot more <laughs> cool stuff though. Definitely. Yeah, there's some really cool stuff. So following the definition and planning phase, 
building the rover started. And in parallel, so did the selection of the landing site. So I'm going to go ahead and get into this because I found this super interesting. To assess which landing site on Mars would be the best, the following objectives had been laid out. These objectives include the fact that at the site, can Mars 2020 accomplish all of the mission's scientific objectives that were laid out in the SDD report? Also, how difficult is the terrain for the rover to travel over? Um, Anna's going to dive into the details about the rover wheels in a bit, so stay tuned. Oh, yeah. There have been some dramatic events with other rovers of them getting stuck. Oh, yeah, definitely. Also, another question that came up when choosing the landing site, does this site have rocks and soils that are capable of preserving these biosignatures that we've been talking about? And also, is there enough variety in the geology of the site? Also, if the, sim if the samples are one day returned to Earth from the site, is there enough confidence that the scientists can benefit from studying them? And then, does the landing site have ice and water resources that can benefit humans if we travel there in the future? So in 2015, at a landing site workshop, scientists filtered down the list from 30 to 8 potential landing sites. Wait, so that's a whole lot of stuff. In summary, they're like, it needs to be easy for the rover to travel on, it has to have stuff that we want to study, and it needs to possibly have water? Yes. And it needs to have samples that if they come back to Earth, they're useful? Exactly. That's a lot of stuff. There's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot of stuff. And a lot of time was spent, a lot of workshops occurred. There were a lot of workshops during this time where a, a lot of effort was being put into choosing the right landing site because you're putting so much money into this so much money and time and resources into this rover is like you want to be able to you want to pick the best possible landing site and you want to be able to meet all of the objectives mm -hmm. also the concept of going to a landing site workshop just sounded super cool to me <laughs> I it just, sounds neat it sounds like a lot of fun <laughs> I don't know. It just sounds like a blast, just like studying all the different features. It sounds cool. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, so in 2015, at a landing site workshop, the scientists filtered down that list uh, from 30 to 8 potential landing sites. And then in 2017, at another landing site workshop, the list of potential candidates was brought down, brought down to three landing sites. And I'm going to go into these three now. So the first possible one was Columbia Hills in Gusev Crater. Columbia Hills holds a special place in Mars exploration history because it was where the Mars Spirit Rover discovered mineral hot springs. And what this means is basically it discovered remnants of these hot springs. It, the Martian surface right now isn't bubbling with a hot spring. Interesting. Okay, that makes sense. When you say hot spring, I immediately mad in like pools with mud baths and stuff like that. <laughs> that would be amazing. And this yes, was... but that's not what it is. Yeah, exactly. Thanks for pointing that out, Anna. So nowhere else in the so this was a really big deal because nowhere else in the one hundred mile radius of Gusev Crater had Spirit come across this kind of information. Um, so it was a really big deal for scientists when Spirit had found 
uh, these remnants. Post-processing of Spirit's data after it stopped operating in 2010 also showed that Gusev Crater could have supported a lake. You know, because of these points, Columbia Hills seemed like a very attractive candidate to explore. Because of like the, the fact that it could that it could have supported a lake and it could have supported these hot springs of water, there's a higher confidence in it having these biosignatures of past life. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So the next potential candidate for a landing site is no, is called Northeast Certus. I'm pretty sure that's what any Certus means. I'm assuming it's just Northeast Certus. So Northeast Certus is a layered terrain. It's formed by volcanic. It was formed by volcanic activity, which also indicated past hot springs, and also indicates that these that the heat sources present there could have caused surface ice to melt millions and billions of years ago. So it could also be, it could, it's also an excellent option to explore signs of past life. And then the last candidate for exploration, which, was, which is the winner, is Jezero Crater. So Jezero Crater is a dried up lake similar in size to Lake Tahoe. Jezero Crater was formed billions of years ago when a large object collided with Mars and it was filled with water, and then eventually it dried up. This would be a great place to explore any signs of past life. Our planet's lakes hold so much life and evidence of, and evidence of that life is preserved in rocks, soil, and sand at the bottom of lake beds on our own planet. So we think that a lake bed would be a really great place to explore on Mars. So the plan is to explore the sediment. Makes sense. Yeah. So NASA's plan is to explore the sediment of the lake bed and the delta. For those of you who don't know, a delta is this is a geologic feature. Basically, when water rushes to fill a lake bed, it loses its power to carry all that sediment as it gets closer to uh, the mouth of the bed. And what you get is you get these sediment deposits that form this layered feature. And that's a delta. So what Perseverance is going to All do... All I think of... <laughs> go for it, Anna. Oh, sorry. I just always think of the Mississippi River Delta. Did you learn about that in school? We learned about that all the time. Yeah. In Louisiana. Uh-huh. Yep. Yes. Perfect way to give us a visual. After exploring the delta, the rover will explore the shoreline and then the crater rim. The crater rim is a very important area for exploration. Back when the crater was formed by this large object colliding with the Martian surface, what happened in this process was a bunch of rocks from deep within the Martian surface were displaced upon collision, and they were displaced to the crater rim. And when this happened, the rocks were very, very hot. This could have led to hot springs. So another excellent place for signs of past life. There's a really great two-minute video by NASA that covers an animated flyover of the Jezero crater using images from Martian orbiters, and it also goes over what I just said in a bit more detail. I'll have that linked in our sources. Would recommend checking that out. It's interesting to me that they would want to see this big object hit Mars, it made a hole, and all that stuff had to go somewhere, so it went to the outside of the crater, naturally, and that that would be what they would want to look at. It makes sense, but I would have never thought about that. 
Right. It makes a lot of sense. I think it's so interesting that there's so much time and research devoted into truly understanding the geologic evolution of the Martian surface to determine what the best place would be. And it makes sense. I just, I never thought about all the research that went into it. As an engineer, my mind goes to the rover and like what the rover contains and how it's built. And it's really cool to like focus on the science of it. Yeah, that's really neat. The biology and everything. Geology. All the ologies. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Following the engineering design process for Mars 2020, the rover came together in a clean room at JPL. It was difficult for me to find information on the NASA website that detailed out the build process of the rover, but I did find a few NASA news articles that covered some milestones, so I'll cover what I found. JPL actually built two Mars 2020 rovers. One was for flight and one was a prototype to make sure all their hardware came together as planned as they built the flight version. They built a second copy that they never intended to fly. They're like, this is the one we're going to use on Earth. Make sure it works. Exactly. As NASA is integrating the hardware for the Mars rover, this process of integrating this hardware is called stacking, which means that they're making sure that all the bolt holes line up. Basically, everything is coming together as planned and as designed. The assembly process for this prototype includes integrating the rocket power descent stage, fitting the back shell, which protects the rover when it enters the Martian atmosphere, fitting the parachute nose cone that protects the parachute when the rover enters the Martian atmosphere, and the rest of the hardware. NASA completed the stacking process on April 3, 2019. After stacking, the rover was sent to JPL's environmental test facility for acoustic testing and then a thermal vacuum chamber to confirm that the stacking survived conditions similar to space. After the stacking process back in 2019, the roar was then de-stacked and then tested some more. They put the whole thing together. They put it through a whole bunch of testing to make sure it worked. They took it apart and then they did even more testing. Exactly. Another cool aspect of the rover build process is scientists conducting analog testing. Over the past few years, NASA scientists have traveled to different parts of the world to study areas that are geologically similar to Mars. In a recent trip in 2020, scientists headed to Nevada to study a dried lake bed. Seven scientists headed to Nevada, while 150 scientists worked with them remotely on the study. Whoa. Super cool. It amazed me that for this analog test, so many scientists were involved. I bet they all work on one little thing. Mm Mm-hmm. That's a lot of people. It's a lot of people, and I wouldn't be surprised if all of them were specialized in some sort of way. That would make sense to me. This Nevada analog trip was named ROAST, which stands for Rover Operations Activities for Science Team Training. I like it. Me too. The scientists that went to Nevada didn't actually take the rover with them. Instead, they used spectrometers and cameras over a two-week period to simulate rover operations. This trip helped scientists learn what to look for with Perseverance and then also helped them improve how to communicate with the rover and with each other to determine where the rover should go and what samples the rover should collect. Oh. Yeah. That's so interesting. I'm guessing they were like, these features of riverbeds tend to have the most mineral deposits, so they're going to like look for similar looking features in the Mars riverbed. Exactly. But the human part of this that gets interesting is that there's so many scientists that are also invested in what we're researching. These exercises are also really good 
in getting this whole team of 150 remote scientists and the seven scientists there that are acting like the wheels and eyes of the rover to collaborate. So it really simulates, you know, the home team on Earth telling the rover where to go and what images to capture and what samples to capture. I also imagine getting 157 people to communicate and work together flawlessly has to be tricky. That's a lot of people to work together. It's very impressive. It's really cool. The instruments that this team had included instruments that mimicked what is on Perseverance. So this included the SuperCam, which is this rock analyzing laser imaging instrument, Pixel, an X-ray imager, and RIMFAX, a radar imager to image deep within the surface. And this was actually affixed on a stroller. It's like the scientists pushing the stroller around, acting like this is the Martian rover. That's so funny. And capturing images with the expensive instrumentation. (laughs) That's fantastic. Yeah, I love that. Oh, I'm sure it's like a real legit baby stroller. Like some of those are very well made and are very structurally sound, but I'm picturing like a plastic floral baby stroller. (laughs) Yeah, I can see that image coming to mind, but you are right. It's like more of a sturdier, very standard stroller. And you can see the image on the NASA website and I'll have that linked in our sources. It's fun to see. That's amazing. Those were some of my history highlights, the objectives, the selection of the landing site, the analog trips by the scientists to practice getting ready for the actual Perseverance trip. And there's just so much more detail that I could go into, but I chose some of the highlights that I found really interesting. In our sources, we'll have resources linked that you can dive deep yourselves. Oh yeah, don't worry. The information's out there. (laughs) Definitely. Let's fast forward in this history that I just covered. Let's fast forward to after building, test, assembly, to our launch date. Perseverance launched July 30th at 7.50 a.m. Eastern on an Atlas V-541 rocket from Launch Complex 41 at Cape Canaveral, Florida. Woo! Woo is correct. (laughs) And the expected landing is February 18th, 2021. So get hyped. That's pretty fast. Yeah, it is. I'm really excited. Yeah, I am too. That's a quick Mars trip. That's all I have. Anna, I'm super excited to hear about the future and also, like you mentioned, changes from Curiosity. I can't wait. I'm excited to get into it. There's some cool stuff happening. But before that, should we take a break? Let's do it. excited to get into some current happenings with Mars 2020. Me! I'm curious to hear about what's going on with Perseverance. Wonderful. Shall we get right back into it? Yeah, let's do it. I'm excited to hear this. Going back to where I left off, Perseverance launched on the ULA Atlas V-541 rocket on July 30th at 7.50 a.m. EST. The Atlas V-541 has AJ-60 solid rocket boosters. Each of those boosters produces about 1680 kilonewtons of thrust. And that rocket has a Centaur upper stage, which is propelled by RL-10 engines, which which each produce 110 kilonewtons of thrust. So the reason why I'm mentioning this is because actually this launch of Mars 2020 
was the 502nd launch of the RL10 engine. I just thought that was a really Ooh, cool fact. That is yeah. really cool. Super awesome. Yeah, Rocketdyne also made the F1, which was used by the Saturn V. That's right. So they've really made a lot of cool engines. Yes, definitely. Going back to launch day, a few hours after the launch, about two hours after the launch, mission controllers were receiving communication from the spacecraft. They were getting this communication from the DSN, which is the Deep Space Network. It's this worldwide network of radio antenna, and it provides support for spacecraft. Anyways, they were receiving communications from the spacecraft that was carrying Mars 2020, but they were not getting telemetry data. No! Yeah, bummer. But That's so sad. It is sad, and in that moment, it's really scary. It's like, where's our telemetry data? But a few hours after that, they started receiving telemetry data, and that had indicated the spacecraft had entered safe mode. So there's oh, two things. Yeah, it was good, but safe mode was concerning. Oh, never mind. <laughs> Take back. <laughs> um, good news to come, though. So there's two issues here. One, we weren't receiving telemetry data, and two, the spacecraft had entered safe mode. Let's tackle the telemetry data issue first. So the communication error was actually the result of the spacecraft sending data when it was still too close to Earth. This is really interesting. Apparently, when this happens, the Deep Space Network can't handle all the data that it's getting. So that's why you see this dropout and there is no telemetry data going to the mission controllers. However, engineers had remembered this same issue because they had experienced it with curiosity before. So they knew just how to adjust the network to process signals in a specific way, and they were good to go. Interesting. It is interesting, but I would also like to get in, I couldn't find a reason for why, because it's still, it didn't make sense to me that if we're getting this telemetry data when it's, like what interference, there's gotta be an interference issue. Why is distance what solves it? Exactly. Article didn't go into that, and I couldn't find anything on the NASA website about that. But if anyone out there knows, we're interested in, in finding out too. Yeah, that's really cool. It is interesting. But something important to note here is lessons learned. Like the fact that they knew that they had experienced the same issue with curiosity and they were quick to apply the solution. It's like, always note your lessons learned. Yeah, seriously. Mm-hmm. All right, so the second issue here was that Mars 2020 had entered safe mode, and this was due to a temperature issue. Safe mode is a state that the system enters when a technical issue has been determined. In safe mode, the spacecraft waits for mission control to run analysis, analyses and checks, and waits for it to receive a command so it can go back into nominal mode. So the temperature issue was likely caused by the spacecraft passing through the Earth's shadow, and this had caused an unexpected drop in temperatures. So after figuring this out, they had put the spacecraft back into nominal mode and they were good to go. So currently, Mars 2020 is cruising through nominal mode, it's going well, and is set to land in the Isidus Basin of Mars, which holds Jezero Crater that I talked about earlier. 
and it will land on February 18th, 2021. Nice. I can't wait until it lands. Yeah, me too. It's exciting. But yeah, that's all I have. Sweet. Uh, Do you want to get into the cool new technology that Perseverance got? Yes, I'm so excited. Awesome. Are you down to take a quick break first, though? Yeah, let's do it. We are back from our break. We're back, everybody, and we're going to hear all about the future and changes from Curiosity from Anna. I'm super excited for this section, Anna. I had a lot of fun. Just as a warning to everybody, I preheated my oven so I can make dinner after this, so it could go off at any moment. <laughs> but, all right, this was really fun, but it I I am not going to talk about everything. I'm just going to talk about some of the major stuff and some of the stuff that I thought was the coolest, but there is a lot of other stuff going on in Perseverance. So if you're interested, I recommend you check it out. Definitely. There's so much research out there. Oh my god. And it's all so interesting, but I really tried to narrow it down to what I thought was some of the predominant differences and some of what I thought was the coolest stuff. Excellent. But yeah, one of the major differences between Curiosity and Perseverance is the wheels. So both of them had six aluminum wheels. However, Perseverance's wheels have gone through a slight redesign. And this is due to the fact that Curiosity has gotten stuck. They were able to free it, That's but another right. rover spe- Sorry. Oh, um, Curiosity got stuck in sand, and it was because of the tread. Exactly. So it got stuck in sand. You're Exactly. And it's really cool. I listened to this guy talk about it, and they were saying they, like, all the scientists were at JPL, and they were, like, trying to make what they thought the Mars sand was and, like, make the test rover go through all these different scenarios to figure out how to free it. But they were able to get Curiosity out. But unfortunately, another rover called Spirit also got stuck in a sand trap, but it got stuck at an angle such that the solar panels used to recharge its batteries were blocked. Oh, that's a bummer. Yeah, they were unable to free it, and it died in 2011. Oh. So, I know, poor guy. Or girl. But the wheels are a big deal. In order to more successfully navigate Mars' terrain, the wheel diameter was was increased slightly, but they're also a bit narrower. So they they made them larger, but thinner. And then Hannah actually jumped to it. The tread pattern has also been changed. So instead it used the chevron pattern. It's almost like triangles. However, Perseverance's tread, it just kind of looks like slightly curved lines. So they did extensive testing at JPL to show that these treads better withstand sharp rocks and sand, while also gripping just as well as the chevron tread. Cool. Yeah, I thought that was neat. Yeah, that's really neat. And then another cool upgrade on Perseverance is the robotic arm. Curiosity also had one. However, Perseverance's is a little different. As Hannah discussed, Perseverance's main goal is to search for signs of ancient ancient microbial life. And in order to do that, NASA needs a lot of samples of the Martian surface. To do that, the hand or turret on the robotic arm needed to be larger because it has to carry a lot of stuff. So it carries the coring drill to extract rock samples, mineral and chemical analyzers to actually check for signs of life, a color camera for pictures of the surface, and they, <laughs> the article I was reading referred, them as, referred to them as selfies or <laughs> images of the rover for health checks. That made me laugh. I love that. <laughs> I like to picture some Mars scientists being like, it takes selfies. 
Oh my gosh, that's amazing. (laughs) Right, so that made me laugh. So what sensors or analyzers is Perseverance actually using? That's a really good question. There's a couple, but my personal favorites are called Sherlock and Watson. Love it. So (laughs) I know, I love it too. Sherlock stands for Scanning Habitable... Scanning habitable environments with ramen and luminescence for organics and chemicals. That was a lot. Oh, or man. Sherlock. So the, oof. A quote from an article I was reading on the NASA website said, It's a spectrometer, oh my God, a spectrometer that will provide fine scale imaging and uses an ultraviolet laser to map mineralogy and organic compounds. Cool. Cool stuff. Yeah, that's really cool. I know. Cool. It's, there's a lot going on there. But to break it down a little bit. This will be the first UV ramen spectrometer on the surface of Mars. I actually had no idea what ramen was. Yeah. I had to Google it. Ramen spectroscopy is named after Indian physicist C.V. Raman. And in 1920, Raman discovered that if you shine a light beam on different surfaces, the wavelength of the scattered light will change depending on what that surface is made of. So essentially, you can create a library of known wavelength changes to try to determine materials. Or essentially fingerprints. So if you have a library or an archive of all these different wavelength patterns that result from shining light on them, you can then use those with the wavelength patterns from an unknown material to try to back out what that unknown material is. Like fingerprints. Very cool. Like fingerprints, right? I know. And then included with Sherlock is Watson. They are a team. You can't have one without the other. And Watson is the Wide Angle Topographic Sensor for Operations and Engineering. <laughs> so it's the N, engineering, not the E. But I will forgive oh, them man. because it works out pretty well. And it is that color camera I was talking about earlier that will allow scientists to see samples being scanned and also taking selfies. Seeing the samples is actually just as important as knowing what they're made out of. According to JPL scientist and the principal investigator of Sherlock... Luther Beagle, life is clumpy. If we saw organics clumping together on one part of a rock, it might be a sign that microbes thrived there in the past. They depend just as much on images of the samples as they do the actual spectroscopy data or spectrometer data. That's so interesting. The The fact that clumping together is a sign that microbes thrived in the past, I wouldn't have known. I wouldn't have known either. It makes me wonder almost if it's like because it was wet, so it like stuck together, but Mm -hmm. I have no idea. Right. But in addition to Sherlock and Watson, the turret also has something called pixel or planetary x-ray lidochemistry. Lidochemistry. Essentially, it x-rays the samples. That's right. So pixel, they actually had a pixel analog when the scientists went into Nevada, like I mentioned earlier, to do the yeah. analog test. So they took a pixel analog to test um, how well they could analyze the samples. Yep. It's basically a very high-tech x-ray. Mm-hmm. And then there's also something called the GDRT, or gaseous dust removal tool. I couldn't find exactly what this does, but I'm guessing it removes dust. I like I don't know if it removes dust from samples or what. But yeah. It removes dust on some capacity. Probably some brush or something. Yeah, I couldn't find it. Yeah. But I don't know. I bet it's important. Mm-hmm. 
And then along with the upgraded robotic arm, Perseverance will employ a depot, depot caching system, which Hannah actually spoke about a little bit. So essentially, the samples will not only be taken and analyzed, they will also be stored and preserved. So Perseverance will carry them around until the team of scientists determines the best place to put them for possible later retrieval. Maybe even by a human. That's right. Then, as I mentioned earlier, some other cool new technology Perseverance has, I'm just going to touch on it. But it will test something called MOXIE, or Mars Oxygen in Situ Research in Situ. In situ. Mars. <laughs> Thank you. There's so many of these. <laughs> Mars Oxygen in Situ Resource Utilization Experiment. The Martian atmosphere is at 96% carbon dioxide, and it cannot support humans. However, MOXIE will actually test the ability to extract oxygen from the Martian atmosphere. This is really cool, and the fact that future astronauts wouldn't have to bring all their oxygen with them. Yes, it's super cool. And yeah, so the Mars atmosphere, like Anna said, it's 96% carbon dioxide, and it's actually 0.17% oxygen. So that's nuts compared to the almost 20% oxygen that we have here on Earth. Yeah, it's a lot lower. And so they're trying to see if they can pull it out with these sensors, with this technology, with MOXIE. Yep. And what's cool about that is that astronauts could actually possibly stay there for longer if they can get oxygen from Mars. That's right. They wouldn't have to carry all those heavy oxygen tanks with them. Exactly. And then I save the best for last, ingenuity. Hannah talked about this. <laughs> but ingenuity is a helicopter is a helicopter that is strapped to the underside of Perseverance and will be flight tested on Mars. Pretty small. It's pretty small. In total, it weighs just under four pounds. The rotor blades have a diameter of 3.9 feet or 1.2 meters, and it stands 3.2 feet tall or 80 centimeters. Ingenuity, it's separate from Perseverance. It's a semi-autonomous, not all, essentially not all automated, experimental helicopter that will receive commands from Perseverance. However, like I said, it is an entirely different experiment. Its main goal is to test the technology. Essentially, is controlled flight possible in the Martian atmosphere? If it successfully flies, it will be the first flight on another planet, by humans at least, right? I guess we don't really know. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And who right? knows? I aliens. So. We, you don't know. You don't know. <laughs> Can't rule that out. Really neat. Its name comes from high school student Vanessa Rupani of Northport, Alabama. They initially submitted the name for Perseverance. Obviously, it wasn't chosen. However, NASA officials realized it was a perfect name for the drone helicopter. A quote from Rupani. The ingenuity and brilliance of people working hard to overcome the challenges of interplan- interplanetary travel are what allowed us to experience the wonders of space exploration. Ingenuity is what allows people to accomplish amazing things. Beautiful. I just thought that was such a wonderful quote. I love it. And I really think it's a perfect name for it. Definitely. The design of ingenuity had to overcome a significant number of obstacles. And a major one, as Hannah already hinted to, being the Mars atmosphere. The Martian atmosphere only has 1% of the oxygen the Earth's atmosphere has, which makes generating lift much more difficult. You actually need air to get lift. Mm-hmm. Or oxygen to get lift. 
So accomplish this, to accomplish this, Ingenuity has two rotor blades that are stacked one on top of the other, which will both spin at 3,000 miles per hour in opposite directions. So one goes clockwise and the other one goes counterclockwise. I was just curious, but this is significantly faster than a commercial helicopter whose main rotor would sit at around 450 to 500 RPMs. So it's about six times faster. Wow. I know. And it needs to go that much faster to generate lift. That's incredible. Yeah, right? I thought so too. That's insanely fast. Because if you look at a regular helicopter blade, you're like, that's fast. (laughs) Yeah. This is six times faster. It's amazing that two rotors... Two rotor blades going that fast can generate enough lift. I'm I'm excited to see the yes. results. But if you think about it, the whole thing only weighs four pounds. Yeah, that's a good point. And what's also... So you still... Sorry, keep going. What's also really cool is that the Martian environment, especially in Jezero Crater, it's going to get super cold, almost minus 130 degrees Fahrenheit. Ingenuity also has to survive that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Super awesome engineering goes into this. It's really cool. It has a heat regulation system, much like Curio- uh, much like Perseverance does. And then it also has a radio antenna, which allows it to communicate with Perseverance and Earth, as well as two cameras, one upward and one downward facing. So the downward camera is for navigation and surveying the train, the surveying the terrain, and the upward camera is for taking upward images They're thinking it might be able to catch things the rover may be unable to see. Oh, cool. Yeah, I thought so too. And then its power comes from six lithium-ion batteries that will be charged using a solar panel that is actually stacked above the rotors. So you have your two rotors, and then you have a little square solar panel. Rectangle solar panel. Oh. I know, it's cute. And then currently, five test flights are planned, the the first of which should be taking place in 2021. Each flight will be fairly short. I got different information on this. Oh, there's my oven. Mm. <laughs> I got different information on this from different sources, but I'm seeing 90 seconds up to three minutes. So fairly short. Oh, yeah. That's and they will really be at, short. Yeah, that's, I think that's as long as the batteries can go. Okay. Mm-hmm. And they will be at altitudes ranging from three to ten meters. It's basically a Mars RC helicopter. Yeah. And then to finish it up, I have this quote from Mimi Ong, Ingenuity's project manager at JPL. The Ingenuity team has done everything to test the helicopter on Earth, and we are looking forward to flying our experiment in the real environment at Mars. We'll be learning all along the way, and it will be the ultimate reward for our team to be able to add another dimension to the way we explore other worlds in the future. I love that. I liked it too. I just liked the part. It didn't even occur to me. We were going to add another dimension to how we explore other worlds. Like, that's so cool. Yeah, so, so cool. I love that. And what a perfect quote to just finish up the section with. Yeah, I really liked it too. It just seemed to perfectly fit there. That was a cool one. That was a really cool episode. I had, it was really awesome to research and learn so much of the innovation that went into, that went into perseverance over curiosity, because at first glance, I wouldn't have realized that, you know, and it really took some digging into it to find out. Oh man, it's really amazing. Yeah, there's so many different sensors that I don't even didn't even realize they had. Like I don't think I would have even learned about Moxie or Sherlock or Watson if I hadn't been doing all this research. Oh, I was just saying I definitely wouldn't know the dimensions of a 2016 Prius. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. 
<laughs> really useful. Oh, man. All right. You ready to do some sources? Yeah, let's get into it. Sweet. Do you want to go for it? Yeah, I'll go first. So right off the bat, the first paper that I used was that paper by the Science Definition Team. I'll have that linked in the sources. You can find it on jpl.nasa.gov. Other sources that I use, base.com, they had a article titled Mars 2020 where we're preparing for launch. I used several articles from nasa.gov and they were all about Mars 2020, um, the scientists traveling to Nevada for their analog research trips, uh, the stacking process that I covered. I also have a YouTube video in here by Everyday Astronaut, really useful video, would recommend you checking it out. And then um, another article from Universe Today and also thespacereview.com. And then I resourced Wikipedia to find out information about Centaur and the AJ-60 engines. And those are my sources. Thank you. How about you, Anna? Oh, man. All right. I got a lot, but most of them are from NASA. So I used a Wikipedia just to get a little bit of background knowledge about Mars 2020 and the Mars Exploration Program. And then on the NASA website, it was cool. I actually found official fact sheets for both Mars 2020, so Perseverance and Ingenuity, and the Curiosity rover. And then I used a bunch of different NASA websites all about the different parts of the rover. I will link them all. All these mars.nasa.gov websites they all talk about different parts of the rover and then i used i found this really cool article on planetary.org there's two parts but it described the landing of curiosity in really awesome detail so if you were curious about that i would highly recommend you read those articles and then i used a couple more nasa websites to learn some more about the rover i learned i went to space.com to learn about the mars when spirit what exactly happened to the Spirit rover. And then I used a website called Redback Aviation to learn about helicopter speeds. And then I got my 2016 Prius information from Dimensions.com and NewCars.com. Love it. Fabulous. Right? Good stuff. Definitely an assortment. But yeah, that's all I got. Heck yeah. All right, so if you like this episode or if you just want to give us some feedback, please go to www.butitisrocketscience.com. You can find us by our Twitter handle, but it is RS. You can also find us on Facebook at our But It Is Rocket Science Facebook page. You can find us on Instagram at But It Is Rocket Science. And check us out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher. Um, Rate and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That would be so awesome. We'd really appreciate it. And yeah, I, yeah, we love hearing from you guys. We do. All right. Are you ready to close it out? Let's do it. Until next time, space cadets. T minus three, two, one, liftoff. liftoff.